Church, if you could please open up to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be at this morning. Acts chapter 2 in verses 42 through 47. As you turn there, one of my favorite analogies of the effect of the gospel has upon a person is that of uh, the 18-wheeler. I, I think I've probably shared this once before. Um, I, I am not 100% certain where I originally heard this analogy. Um, I think it was um, possibly a Paul Washer, maybe a Paul Washer sermon that I'd heard some time ago. It's been long enough now where I just don't remember. But the analogy goes something like this, and I'm going to alter it a little bit to make it shorter so that we can get into kind of the passage this morning. But imagine that a friend is late to a party and gives the excuse, well, I'm sorry I was late, but I got ran over by an 18-wheeler when I was getting out of my car, swerved off into this parking lot and hit me, and I had to go to the hospital before I came over here, and that's why I'm late. I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And so you look at this friend, and they look like they normally do. And what would you call that person? You call them a liar. <laughs> You're a liar. That is not what happened. You know, that's the worst excuse ever. That did not happen. Well, how do you know they're lying? Because if a person got hit by an 18-wheeler, they would look very different. You cannot get hit by an 18-wheeler and still look the same. And so the way the analogy goes is, well, what's bigger, an 18-wheeler or the God of the universe? The point is, you can't claim an encounter with the divine when you've walked away looking no different than you were before. You can't claim it. That kind of person is a liar. This morning, I want to apply that truth to the local church. Here's our main idea. A church gives evidence of the power of the gospel when the Holy Spirit changes its commitments and character. A church gives evidence of the power of the gospel when the Holy Spirit changes its commitments and character. We're going to continue our study in the book of Acts this morning. Just a reminder, this is a book about the power of God through the witness of the church. The early church is growing, but it's not the church that's producing the power of change. It's the power of God. In Acts chapters 1 and 2, we saw that there was a promise of power from the Holy Spirit that the church would be able to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then we see the beginning of that fulfillment. And this morning, at the end of chapter 2, we're going to see the result of such a work. We saw the church's first sermon, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully, and now we see at the end of chapter 2, a changed church. Church, let's stand together this morning for the reading of God's Word, if you're physically able to. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Here's what God's Word says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. 
Holy Spirit, would you please now perform a mighty work in our midst through the proclamation and reception of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So last week we ended with verse 41. If you want to look there momentarily, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The they in verse 42 is referring to the 3,000 souls added to the church. What we're about to see is called evidence. How do we know these souls were added to the church? What's the difference between this soul and that soul? There are two general evidences of the Spirit's work and the new Christian's faith in our passage this morning. This will structure the sermon. Number one, Spirit-filled Christians have changed commitments. Number two, Spirit-filled Christians have changed character. So Spirit-filled Christians have changed commitments. Spirit-filled Christians have changed character. So number one, if you look at verse 42 here, it says, and they devoted themselves. When we think of being devoted, usually a relationship comes to mind. I am devoted to my spouse. Maybe you were devoted to your spouse or to your children or to your parents. We think of being devoted in an emotional way. It's an emotional commitment to someone. I am devoted to you. Now, the Greek word here, prosketereo, the tongue twister of a word, does describe commitment, but it has more to do with the strength of the commitment. The root word from this, the way that Greek works is they can take words and they kind of add attachments on to either side to give it extra meaning, and that's kind of how they get that. So when I say that big tongue twister of a word, there's a small part of that word that's the base. That word, the foundation, is power or might is what it means. So the full definition of this word is be devoted to, which we see in the translation, persist obstinately in, persevere, to attach oneself to, to attend constantly, to be busily engaged in. So we see devoted And you may not think of these things. These may not come to mind, but that's what this word is. Persist obstinately, persevere, attach oneself to, attend constantly, to be busily engaged in. Now, I need you to hold on to that definition in the back of your mind because we will come back to this. This is nothing less than a complete and total commitment to. Well, what did the new disciples commit to? I'm going to give you four observations just from verse 42 this morning. Number one, spirit-filled Christians have changed commitments, number one, to the scriptures. Notice it says here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This phrase is essentially synonymous with the New Testament. Even before it was officially compiled and labeled New Testament, the apostles' teaching was recognized by the early church to be authoritative. So they would get letters from the apostles, and then they would pass them around to all the churches, and they would have it read in their church, and then they would pass it to the next church by a messenger, and they would read it aloud in their church, and they would pass it on. And so these letters began to be circulated very early. We have almost every single book in the New Testament regularly circulating among the churches, and the church recognized 
This is divine. This is Scripture that we're looking at here. As Christ's chosen representatives, the apostles spread the teaching of Christ. Just like the early church, churches today are to be obstinately persistent towards the Scriptures. It's okay for the world to say, you are too dedicated to an outdated book. They can think that all they want. We are devoted to the Scriptures, obstinately persistent that we will study the Scriptures. Now, this doesn't just mean, well, I read my Bible a lot, or I go to church every Sunday, though it certainly includes that. This kind of commitment describes a whole life commitment to the Scriptures. I don't think you can accurately say, I'm devoted if you spend time learning but never living what you read in this book. To say that I'm obstinately persistent doesn't just mean I'm just going to read, 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 but I'm going to do that too. Oh, there's something else. I'm going to do that too. Oh, look at this over here. I'm going to do that too. Our entire lives are transformed by the Scriptures. Listen carefully. Obedience to the Bible is not optional. It's not optional. There are passages in this book that are hard. Do you know why it's hard? Because we are still sinners. Yes, we're saved by grace, but the sinful nature is still within us. And whenever we read from God's Word, our sinful nature goes, Bleh. I don't like that. I, I, don't, uh, I don't want to do that. But we are followers of Jesus. We are devoted to the Scriptures. It isn't follow if you want. To follow Jesus is nothing less than following the Scriptures. This is where we read of Jesus. This is the glimpse we have of Jesus. There are a lot of people who have made comments like, well, I, I don't follow the Scriptures, I follow Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. What you're saying is, I follow the Jesus of my own choosing. Where else are you going to learn about Jesus? It's the Scriptures. This is what we are committed to following because we follow Jesus. Loving our enemies is not easy or fun. Why do we do it? Because we follow Jesus. And through the Scriptures, He teaches us to do so. So the early church, we see here they devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching. So changed commitments. A church is devoted to the Scriptures. Number two, second changed commitment, is to a local church to a local church. This is the next word here, the fellowship. And the word the there is there in the Greek also, the fellowship. When we use that word fellowship, we usually just mean kind of hang out. We're going to have a we're going to have a fellowship. We're just going to hang out. We're going to get together and do something, eat food. Usually it's a Baptist church. We're going to eat food. Case in point, we got food today. It's a Baptist church, okay? Might as well slap fellowship on that. That's how we typically use that word. Now, the Greek word here, koinonia, this word means fellowship, which we see, participation, communion, association, partnership. In fact, in some lexicons, it lists the word in English as participation fellowship together. Not just fellowship, but participation fellowship. One definition puts it this way. The act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or group, especially used 
of marriage and churches. So this word is used to describe marriage relationships and church relationships. So it's not, fellowship isn't just hanging out just as much as marriage isn't just hanging out. When I'm married to my wife, I don't just hang out over there with her. I'm committed to her. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relationship. There's a sharing of activities or privileges of an intimate association. You're committed to one another and relate to one another in ways that you are not committed to and relate to other people. This same word speaks of the fellowship as the church. It's referring to an exclusive covenant relationship with the collection of believers. This is a church. When we read 42 through 47, what we see is the very first glimpse of the church being the church. This is it. I look and I see there's the first sermon, there's the first glimpse of the church right there. They're committed. This is what church membership looks like. They are members of the church. The souls were added to the... You know what that means? That means they kept track. They kept track of these things. They had it written down. Look, we've got 3,000 new souls. They're keeping track of who is of the church and who is not of the church. Now remember, this isn't just a name on a membership role type of thing. They were devoted to be busily engaged in the church, to attach oneself to the church, to attend the church constantly. But many churches today have minimized what membership in a church actually means all in the name of outreach or growth. Come be a part of our church. You actually don't have to look like the church to do it. Isn't that ironic? Someone can be a member without being exclusively committed to, busily engaged in, attached to, attending constantly that church. But regular church attendance isn't meant to be optional, just like conformity to the Scriptures isn't meant to be optional. That doesn't mean if you miss church you're not a Christian. In the same way it doesn't mean if you ever disobey the Bible you're not a Christian. It's a changed commitment towards. Hebrews 10.25 instructs us not to neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. In fact, up until fairly recently, non-attendance in a church was actually grounds for church discipline and removal from membership. There was a local pastor, uh, Tish went to his house, he was having some kind of sale, all his books, he said, hey, you want me to get you some books? I said, yeah, that's wonderful. She sent me a video and just scanned the phone around his personal library at home, and it was just walls of bookshelves full of books. I'm like, oh my goodness, just grab anything that the systematic theology, history of Baptists, anything like that. Well, she brought back a whole slew of books. And one of those books is a source book of Baptist history and heritage. And in this book, you can read letters written by deacons or pastors or elders to members of their church or to other churches or to deacons and elders within the same church. And I was shocked 
And this only goes back a couple of hundred years, a span of a couple hundred years. I was shocked how often this came up. One letter that was written by a Baptist pastor explained why they disciplined for non-attendance. Non-attendance many times is not the first sin, but the second. It's the visible sin that reveals the hidden sin. He goes on to explain, why does someone do that? Because they have something that they are hiding. And then in his experience, you go and talk to this brother or sister, hey, we haven't seen you, what's going on? And then it's exposed. It usually followed some other sin that led to that breaking of the fellowship. When the fellowship is neglected, there's a reason. And that reason is usually just as condemning as the non-attendance itself. So the early church was committed to the scriptures, committed to a local church, number three, to communion, to communion. Keep looking at 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now, this phrase here, commentators are in wide agreement that this is a reference to communion. That doesn't mean it's only communion, but that's involved. Some add on to this. In fact, you see it a little bit later in verse 46, when they're attending the temple together day by day and breaking bread in their homes, that there's a love feast that happens with that taking of communion. So they practice communion together, this is our union, and then they stay and linger and enjoy a love feast together. But this phrase here, referencing communion, the Lord's Supper, is a physical act that symbolizes the invisible connection within the fellowship. So there's a connection between members of a church. Communion makes that connection visible. It's a visible demonstration. You can think of communion as communicating union. Communion. It's a physical display of the church's union with one another and with Christ. When the church came together, they regularly practiced this ordinance, and they proclaimed, we belong to one another, and we belong to Christ. We might wonder why this belongs in this list of things. Why communion? We get the scriptures, we get the church, we get the prayers. Why breaking of bread? Why include this? But it's not a small issue. First, this is one of only two ordinances given by Jesus for his church to practice, the other being baptism. Baptism marks entry into the church. Baptism is how we know who belongs to the church now. Communion is how we know who is still in the church. Historically, when church discipline is exercised, that person is not allowed to join in communion. Why? You are not a part of the church anymore. So baptism, entry into the church. Communion is continuing with the church. But there's a second reason why this is important. To take communion is to physically, visibly show that we belong to Christ and His church. Our identity as Christians is to be evident, visible. Now, communion is one way that that happens, but there are other ways. For instance, how we relate to one another. Do we relate to one another in such a way that our unity is evident? Is our togetherness visible? And obvious, not just physically, but in spirit as well. 
This happens with the Lord's Supper at a bare minimum. At the minimum, this is the breaking of bread, at a minimum. It should go beyond that. It must not end there. So they were committed, three, to communion. And number four, there was a changed commitment to prayer together. To prayer together. While private prayer is important, the phrase here, the prayers, is more specific. It's not just that they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the prayers. The prayers implies something more official than just general prayer. Well, what are the prayers? Well, in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John go up to the temple. It says they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's very likely that this is what this refers to. Regular, daily prayer together with other Christians. Whatever the prayers are, it refers to something both regular, they're devoted, constantly attending to, and corporate, they did it together. Just like every other item on the list, the prayers were done together by those who came to faith. And it wasn't just that they believed in the power of prayer. I don't think I ever come across a Christian that says, oh, I actually don't believe in the power of prayer. Everybody says, I believe in the power of prayer. So it's not just that being devoted means, yes, I believe we should pray. They actually prayed. They put their money where their mouth was. Do you believe in praying together? Yep. How do I know? I pray together with people in my church. We're devoted to persist obstinately in prayer together, to persevere in prayer together, to attend constantly to prayer together, to be busily engaged in prayer together. One commentator said this, sadly prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainment, or the testimonies of the rich and famous draw large crowds. Prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. That is undoubtedly the reason for much of the weakness in the contemporary church. Unlike the early church, we have forgotten the Bible's commands to pray at all times and to be devoted to prayer. So these four changed commitments were evidence that these souls now belong to the Lord. How do you know? They're devoted to apostles' teaching. They're devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread together. They don't care if the world knows that they're Christians and they look like it. They're devoted to the prayers with us. If these are evidences that souls know Jesus, why do churches minimize them? Why do we do that? Why does the church make it easier for people to live uncommitted lives within the church. It's like we want to grow the church by looking less like the church. We're defeating ourselves before we even start. These four essential commitments are the basic 
building blocks of following Jesus that the rest of the Christian life is built upon. A commitment to the Scriptures, a church, communing with Christians, and praying with Christians. When one or more of these commitments are not there, you are potentially looking at not a Christian. This is what Christians are. It's not just what we do, it's what we are. But the changed commitments aren't the only change that we see in the early church in this passage. 42 is dense, but then in verses 43 through 47, we see our second point this morning. Spirit-filled Christians have changed character. Spirit-filled Christians have changed character. In this passage, I see four more, more specific examples of this. Number one, holy fear. If you look in verse 43 here, it says, and awe came upon every soul. I don't know if your translation has this, if you don't have the ESV. Mine's got a footnote, and if you go to the bottom, it shows you. You don't have to have a Greek degree to be able to do this. Little number one there, you go to the bottom. It says, or fear. So it's telling us now, this word actually can be translated differently. Now, I will tell you that it's the Greek word phobos, which is where we get the word phobia. It's a phobia. A phobia came upon every soul. means fear. So then why do we have it translated awe here? Because when this word is used in the context of God or miracles, it refers to a recognition of holiness. It's the same word used when Jesus has risen from the grave and the disciples are terrified, phobos, and filled with joy and go back and tell everyone. That's awe. They are filled with awe. So it's, a, it's similar to the phrase, the fear of the Lord. It isn't fear as in, oh, oh, Lord, you scared me. It's not like that. It's a fear as in a reverential respect in light of something great. And in this case, it tells us what it's in light of. The many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. This holy fear is undoubtedly what drove the believers to devote themselves to the Lord. Why would the believers devote themselves to hard teaching, to hard relationships within the church, to visibly showing this union, and to praying together with one another? What would drive someone to do that? They were filled with awe, a holy fear. I think one of the reasons that many struggle with the commitments we just looked at is because we've lost this holy fear. Jesus has become such a friend to us that he's no longer our God. God has not changed between the Old and New Testaments, despite that accusation. He is still the same holy God. The early church lived in constant awe of who God is and what he was doing around them. They were amazed at the things that were happening. When was the last time you felt awe towards the Lord? When's the last time you just sat in awe of what Jesus has done for you, even if just for a brief moment? This morning as we're singing, I think, why should I gain from His reward? 
That stirs awe in me. Do you know why? Because I am utterly unholy. I don't deserve his mercy. Why do we expect, it's really not a mystery, why the world isn't moved in awe of who God is when God's own churches have lost their fear and awe? We want everyone else to be filled with awe, and we are not. There was a book that I'd read recently, and I wish I'd have thought about getting this, but he said something to the effect of, one of the scariest things is not outright rejection, or one of the most common rejections of the Lord is not outright rejection, but just a disinterested yawn. If you were to lump together all the good works that you've ever accomplished and hold them up to the Lord, they wouldn't purchase you five seconds of eternity with Him. Yet God, being rich in love, not because of any of your works, but because of His love for us, has sent His own Son to die for you so that you can have 10 million years, 10 million times over with Him forever in heaven in perfect bliss, gazing upon His glory. Does that amaze you? I, I, I can't even comprehend that. If you were not filled with awe and wonder with what Jesus has done, you don't know Jesus. It may be because you don't really know yourself as Jesus knows you. Maybe this morning you know that this is you. That's me. I don't know Jesus. Not like that. You can know Jesus like that today. You can know Jesus like that in three minutes. You can know Jesus like that in a few hours. My brother came home one day. We were talking. And I knew he wasn't a Christian. I don't think he knew that yet. If he did, he wasn't open about it. We went to church. You know, they had kind of the traditional invitation thing. We get home. We're talking. And some, some kind of conversation had come up, and I'm always trying to take it back to the Scriptures and Jesus because I, I know that he doesn't know the Lord. And he just breaks down. I mean, we go from one moment of just nothing to he just breaks down. Three minutes later, we're literally in the yard, kneeling on the grass. My jeans are getting soaked because it holds water. We're kneeling on the grass, and he's praying to receive Christ. That can literally happen for you right now. If you will but surrender to Jesus, turning from your sin, placing your trust and faith in him. So holy fear is the first changed character that we see. Here's the second. Sacrificial care. Sacrificial care. Verses 44 through 45 say that the new believers had all things in common. They were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this passage has been misused by many to prop up some sort of socialism or commune-based Christianity where everyone just lives in the same church building together. And you don't own anything. Everyone owns everything together and everyone's taken care of. That's not what this is referring to. 
Notice in verse 46, they still met in their homes. Later in the New Testament, we see that there are some wealthy Christians, and they take their wealth, and instead of selling their house, they say, here, we can meet in my house. I have enough room for everybody. And they provide their needs as people need it. Later in Acts chapter 5, when we see there's this grave sin of this holding back from an offering to the Lord. They were in trouble not because they didn't sell everything, but because they lied about what they gave. So owning things is not wrong. Christians still owned belongings and lived in their own homes. What this passage is suggesting is that when needs came up, every Christian was willing to part with their own belongings so that everyone was cared for. Some sold belongings on an as-needed basis. Others sold it ahead of time and would contribute to a fund that the apostles could then distribute at their discretion. The point here is not to command Christians to give, 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 give. What's striking here is how the disciples cared for one another. They were willing to sacrifice even their own goods for the sake of others. The world understands this type of giving, this sacrificial care between family members. When I sacrifice for my kids or for my wife, the world understands that. When I sacrifice for my parents, the world understands that. The world really doesn't understand a Christian who sacrifices for some other random person just because they go to the same church. The world doesn't get that. There's something otherworldly about it. Sacrificial care. Here's the third changed character. Obvious joy. Obvious joy. Verse 46 is kind of similar to the previous two verses. It says here, They were uh, day by day, 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. This isn't being commanded here, just like the previous verses. They've both already essentially been addressed in the commitments. In fact, the word attending here, when it says they were attending the temple, it's the exact same word in verse 42 that's translated devoted. The exact same word. So we've already covered this. The commitments have been covered. The attention here is on what follows that. Day by day, as they were fulfilling their commitments, here's the focus. What did they do? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the sentence structure implies that the glad and generous hearts are what drove their devoted commitment to and with one another. Why do you go to the temple to pray with these people? I'm happy to do so. I want to give of my time. Why do you gather together in homes and eat together? I'm happy to do so. I want to give of my time. They were just happy to be around one another. Their gladness overflowed in generosity towards one another. They had an obvious joy when it came to being with one another. Maybe this morning you can relate to what I'm about to explain. I relate to it, and I work in a church where there are times when you think, I really just don't want to be around certain people right now at my church. Have you ever thought that before? I have. I've thought that. That is not how the church is designed to be. 
We're here to be filled with an obvious joy for one another, glad and generous hearts for one another. When that hits our heart in that moment, you know what we do? We repent. Say, this is not right, Lord. I don't want to feel this way towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's why Jesus gave the instruction. If you come to the altar with your gift and you realize that you have something between someone, put your gift down and go and be reconciled. You can do that in a minute. Go be reconciled to your brother or sister. They were glad to be around one another. Their joy was obvious. Here's the fourth and final change of character. The early church, the Christians, the souls that were added had visible worship. Visible worship. Verse 47, praising God. Again, this is flowing out of the glad and generous hearts. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Their obvious joy didn't just drive their devoted commitment. It drove them to visible worship. The Christians visibly praised God together. This is really important. The world could see the church praising God. I'm not advocating for praising God just to be seen, but rather what I'm suggesting is that praise is not invisible by definition. It's not silent by definition. This This is not praise. Praise is not hidden. How do you praise a child? When my kids first used the bathroom in the potty, how did I praise them? I like jumped up and down for joy and went and got the candy jar and gave them like, yes! And they're like, you know, they don't know what's going on. I was ecstatic. That's how you praise someone. It's visible. It's audible. Praise is not just being in the presence of other people who are praising. Just because you were in this building this morning with other people singing doesn't mean you were praising. It's very likely we had people that weren't praising at all. I'm just guilty by association. Makes no sense when it comes to praise. Singing God's praises together when we gather is not about sounding good or looking a certain way. It's about praising God. That's why we do it. We don't do it because it sounds good. We don't do it to sound good. You don't need to sound good to praise God. Now suddenly we joke about it and we're like, yeah, but if you have my voice, you would change your mind. That's just an excuse for disobedience. It's just an excuse for disobedience. I struggled with this for a long time, if I'm being honest. You're like, yeah, Gary, but you got up and played the guitar and led the worship. You don't understand me, if that's what you think. What you saw here, I told other people, like, yeah, I had to do that. You did what? They couldn't believe it. You think, oh, well, that's just who you are. No, it's not. I'm not like that. I do love music. I love singing in the shower. <laughs> no one present to hear. I love belting in the car or on my mower. No one present to hear. But if I want to praise God with my church, I must audibly sing. So many people let the fear of how they sound keep them from obeying Scripture's command to praise and worship God. 
Did you know that we're actually commanded to sing in the Bible? It's a command. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.18 and 19, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All throughout the book of Psalms, Sing praises to the Lord. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him. Sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Singing is not a spectator sport. Singing in the church is, meant to, is not meant to be a performance. But we've turned it into that. It's a command for the whole church. It doesn't matter whether or not it could be worshipful to listen to one person masterfully sing something. Of course that can be worshipful, but that misses the point. The point is that we are commanded to sing together. That's what the early church did. A pastor named Jonathan Lehman has put it this way, Far better than the sweet harmonies of a few trained singers is the rough and hale sound of pardoned criminals delighting with one voice in their Savior. The most beautiful instrument in any Christian service is the sound of the congregation singing. Do you all remember the Bible study we had this last summer? I think the comment I've heard the most about it, one comment I've heard a lot is it was so good to be with other Christians. I've heard that a lot, and that's right and good. I think the comment besides that that I heard the most often was the singing was incredible. Sometimes it was nothing more than a single person up here starting the song. So it wasn't a grand performance. What made it so spectacular? When we began, the room filled with voices Good-sounding voices and bad-sounding voices. They were all lifted up singing together. It almost, if you were here, kind of like knocked you off your feet a little bit at how loud it was. That is more beautiful than the most professionally trained choir in God's ears. It is the Christians of a church singing together. Now, worship is more than just singing. The reason that I'm hitting on singing is because the word praising alludes to singing. But the church's worship extended into their lifestyle. That's why in verse 47, it continues praising God and having favor with all the people. So as people saw the Christians worshiping God with their lives, they were amazed by that for a time. Persecution would come later. But they were amazed by that. It also concludes with the result of the early church's transformation. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you see the relationship here? Day by day, it says the Christians displayed their changed commitments, going to the temple, breaking bread together, day by day. And day by day, as the world saw what the church was becoming, more and more people were convinced of the gospel and were saved. God added to their number. 
Church, we cannot and should not expect for God to add to our number those who are being saved if we are not displaying the same evidences of being an actual church. Why would God fill a church that's not a church? There are many buildings with the name church on the sign that look nothing like a true church. Jesus didn't purchase us to be the same. He didn't purchase you because he loves you just the way you are and wants you to stay that way. He purchased you because he loves you and wants you to be so much more. And we get a glimpse this morning of what that more looks like. He wants us to be different, to be changed. If you were a follower of Christ... That decision changes your commitments and your character. And this is the real reason why many don't come to Christ. They do not want changed commitments. They do not want changed character. Or maybe they think that they can make those changes on their own, and they try and struggle, and then they can't, and then they blame God and say, see, it didn't work. I became a Christian, and Christianity didn't work. That's because you were living in your own power. It is only the Holy Spirit of God that can change the commitments and character of Christians. So as you hear this this morning, I have a simple question. Have you actually been changed? I've heard the comment, I've been a Christian since I was in the crib. And I think it was a joke, but I think it was partially believed. You made that kind of life decision? Before you could talk? Have you actually been changed? In what ways is God still changing you? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm not perfect on any of this. But I am being changed still. Are you being changed still? Have you been resisting change? Maybe in one or more of these areas. You know that change needs to happen, but, but I have a good reason for why I'm not changing here. Are you resisting change? And if so, where? Church, may we become as obviously different from the world as the early church was. May we commit to the Lord and one another through His Word, through our fellowship with this church, through our communing together, and through prayers together. May we live in awe of God with glad, generous, sacrificial hearts as we praise his name together. And may our witness as a church be loud and clear to a watching world that many might be saved. Amen? One final question for us as a church and as individual members of this church. Is our church living proof that the gospel still changes lives. Are we proof that the gospel changes people? To what degree do our actions either defend us or condemn us? And finally, what are we going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? This is a question for us as individual members, and it's a question for us as a church. Are we content? Have we become content? 
There is no growth without change. God wants to change you and I in our church. He wants our commitments to look different, and he wants our character to look different. How are we going to do that? Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this glimpse of the early church, as I look at this glimpse of the early church, Lord, I confess to you, I am excited. What a wonderful gift to have something so spectacular to be a part of. Knowing that there are brothers and sisters around me that will sacrificially care for me, that will pray together with me, that will visibly demonstrate union with me and with Christ, that will exhort me with the scriptures, that will study the scriptures with me, that will commit to ministry together with me. Lord, that is too good to be true. And yet you have given it to us in the church. You have purchased us and redeemed us by the blood of your Son that we might be different, a different sort of people, a different sort of family. Thank you. Lord, this morning as there is maybe someone in this building that is not yet united to us or to Christ, I pray that you would stir that individual. That you would lay conviction squarely on the seat of their heart. That they might no longer run and hide and turn and justify their sin. Lord, if there is pride in that heart keeping them from turning to you because everyone already thinks they're a Christian, I pray that you would strike that pride down with one fell swoop. That that heart might finally be changed. That new commitments and new character might begin emerging. Lord, in the rest of us, those who have followed you, who have committed ourselves to you already in a decision, would you not allow the extent of our commitments and character to be a single decision we made one time. But Lord, would you stir and change us constantly in our commitments to the scriptures, to prayers together, to praising you with one another. Lord, we ask you to do this mighty work in our church, not for our sake, not for our honor and glory, but Lord, so that we might be a beacon for your glory that we might be a church that witnesses the power of the gospel, that proclaims to our community, see what God has done and see what God still does. We want to be that church, Lord, but only you can work it in us. So we ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ and according to the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to each one of us who believe. Amen.